Hello, hello, everyone. This is Alex. And this is Melissa. And this is Kat. So you may recognize us from different segments and episodes of Raw Talk. And today we're bringing you a special surprise episode to get you excited about season two. So earlier this month, we had the wonderful opportunity to host an event at our university, the University of Toronto, called It Was Never a Dress. This event was a discussion on women and diversity in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine, or STEM for short, a topic that's very dear to our hearts. The event was well attended and spurred a lot of great discussion, and we're very excited to share this with you today. But before we jump into the discussion, we want to take a few moments to tell you how this event came about. So the three of us, we're all graduate students at the Institute of Medical Science, and we have spent countless coffee breaks and lunch hours discussing diversity in academia, or lack thereof, uh, and our own experience of being women in science. And this discussion probably would not have gone beyond the three of us and some of our other grad school friends had we not attended the March for Science in Toronto back in April. There were a lot of really wonderful talks there, but in particular, we were inspired by Eden Hennessy's talk. And so for those of you who don't know her, Eden Hennessy is a PhD candidate studying social psychology at Wilfrid Laurier University. And she really hit home this idea of confronting sexism in STEM. Um, And I think for us, that was really the tipping point and inspiration to go ahead and and host this event. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So throughout our graduate careers, um, we've had the opportunity to work with and learn from a a number of amazing women scientists at U of T. And we've always interacted with these individuals in an academic context where the topic of sex, gender, femininity never was really discussed. And so we thought, why don't we invite these women scientists that we look up to, sit them on a panel and see what they have to say about all of this. What have their experiences been? Have they faced barriers? Do they have any suggestions about how we should proceed? So Kat, do you maybe want to talk to us a bit about the inspiration for It Was Never Addressed, our title? (laughs) Sure. Uh, So as we were trying to come up with a name for this event, I I remember an image that I had seen online, and it was a a picture of the women's washroom sign, but it was modified uh, to make her look like a superhero with the cape and all. Um, and it had the words, it was never addressed underneath. Uh, so I proposed this idea to the group, and we we took it and we ran with it. Um, and we ended up creating our own version of the washroom sign, but this time she was wearing a lab coat. Uh, and it turns out that this image is actually um, a logo and is representative of a larger movement started by a company called Axosoft. Uh, and this is an online campaign that aims to break down barriers and shift perceptions of women in STEM. So huge thank you to Axosoft for so providing the inspiration for us. And a huge thank you to Alex, who <laughs> yes. spent countless hours uh, sitting and designing uh, our logo <laughs> of our woman wearing the lab coat. <laughs> Days. <laughs> but it was great, though. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So we're going to quickly introduce our panelists, but we had uh, some of our friends and people who attended the the event uh, reach out to us after and ask us whether we had any trouble um, securing panelists for the event. And what we wanted to say was that everybody who we reached out to responded with a resounding yes. And I think that really speaks to the importance of this topic and everyone's willingness to contribute to the conversation. And I was actually really surprised with how quickly everyone got back to us because it's a fairly busy time for a lot of academics. Mm-hmm. And uh, this place, this event took place in August. Um, so a lot of people tend to be away at that time, too. But uh, everyone writing. was, yeah, was prepping on for grand writing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So without further ado, we keep talking about our speakers. Here they are. Um, so our wonderful keynote was Dr. Renee Hlotek, and she's an astrophysicist, um, and so she strives to understand the universe and works on a variety of problems in theoretical and observational cosmology. She's also a TED Senior Fellow and a South African uh, Rhodes Scholar. She delivered a wonderful talk, um, and we have the link up on our website if you want to see it. I really, really recommend. Um, it's, it's great. Uh, okay, so in terms of our panelists... Our first panelist was Dr. Jillian Einstein, and she's a neuroscientist who aims to address the sex and gender bias prevalent in scientific research by contributing a more complete understanding of how these factors shape the brain and behavior. Up next was Sharmista Mishra, who is a doctor doctor. She has a PhD as well as a medical degree. Um, And Dr. Mishra is an infectious disease physician and mathematical modeler. So she develops and integrates mathematical models to better inform clinical, programmatic, and policy decisions about the mechanisms that underpin HIV and other STI epidemics. 
Dr. Molly Shoykit also joined our panel. Uh, and Dr. Shoykit is an expert in the study of polymers for drug delivery and regeneration. So polymers are materials that promote healing in the body. Um, and she's also the only person to be a fellow at all three of Canada's national academies, which is very cool if you ask me. And our last panelist was Dr. Kona Williams, uh, who is Canada's very first and still only Indigenous forensic pathologist. Uh, So she plays a key role in improving communication between First Nations and the death investigation system in Ontario. And she also plays a key role in combating Canada's missing and murdered Indigenous women and men crisis. And we actually met her at an event uh, earlier this year that discussed Indigenous Indigenous perspectives perspectives on on health. Exactly. We were also really excited to have Samantha Yameen moderate the panel. Um, so you guys might remember Sam from our Derek Vanderkoy episode. Uh, she studies brain development and stem cell biology. Um, and she's also incredibly passionate about science communication and engaging the public in the scientific process. Yeah, Sam's awesome. She has this really cool uh, Twitter feed. If you'd like to look her up, her handle is Samantha Z-Y. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it for now uh, from us. Let's jump straight into the discussion. with a few questions that the wonderful um, organizational team put together and then we'll do our audience Q&A afterwards. So I gave a brief introduction. There are many more accolades that can be added for each of you. So I'd like to start if we could just go one by one if there's anything you'd like to add about your professional career but um, also importantly why do why did you agree to be here today? I think that's a very important one. Why is this important to you? I mean I think it's important to me because I um as a young person growing up in South Africa, um, I didn't actually have lots of discouragement. I had a parent that really encouraged me to do science or to do anything that I wanted to. Um, but I still see that we need to change a conversation about who, what scientists look like and who can be a scientist because I, I fear that we are um, not paying enough attention to that. Fantastic. Thank you. Dr. Einstein? Well, I'm here today because I think this is an incredibly important topic. I, I, I want to see more women in STEM. I want to see the women in STEM feel comfortable in their skin and their clothes yes. um, in, in doing the uh, work that they've chosen to do. Um, and I, I feel that mentorship and sharing experiences is, is really an important part of that. Thank you so much. And Dr. Mishra? I'm not exactly sure why I'm here. I have to say this is not my comfort zone um, to to talk about something other than um, the research that I do, particularly without any slides or data um, to to support anything that I say. Um, But I think Renee captured it really well in one of her slides where I feel like, yeah, kind of infiltrated. Um, I am surviving, but uh, I'd like to be a more active part of the change. And I learned a lot from um, the keynote Um, discussion and the talk, and I'm hoping to learn a lot today about, yeah, being part of the change in the culture in both our lab, our department, as well as across the university and in the field. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Molly Shoykit, if there's anything you'd like to add about your research and also why these types of events are important, I know you do a lot with L'Oreal Women's Foundation, so. You know, I think we have really such a great opportunity living in Canada. Um, such great opportunities for women. And I often think that so many women around the world have to hide their intelligence or their faces. And in Canada, we don't have to do either of those things. Yet even in this great country, um, there are many roadblocks. And, um, you know, growing up, I was all about girl power. And I had a great role model in my mom, and she really encouraged me to you know, seek a career, seek a profession, and be independent, really financially independent, because you have more opportunities if you can, if you control your own funds. Um, uh, Then, um, I actually don't mind talking about my family, um, because they're so important to me, and I have two sons, and there I was, a, you know, young girl who grew up, or There I was reflecting on my life as girl power, and now I was raising two sons. And what it really (laughs) taught me, and so I'm really happy to see some men here as well, is that if we do want to change the world, um, then we really need to do it together with men. 
and that my now, um, as a role model, not just for other women, but also for young men, to really uh, respect and value, really value women in careers, whatever those careers are, and obviously I'm very passionate about science. Thank you. And last but not least, again, Dr. Quinn Williams, um, anything you'd like to add about your professional role as a pathologist and um, why these types of events might be important for you? Um, so as a new pathologist, I've only been practicing for like a year and a bit, um, <laughs> made the First Nations liaison for the province. So essentially I deal with all of the First Nations deaths that occur in the province. It just essentially also means that I'm on call for 24-7, like for the entire year. Anyway, um, and the reason why I'm here, it's, you know, again, because I'm so new and I'm just starting out in my career, it's good for me to see where I can be. Um, and it's also good for me to look at young women and even young men and say, you know what, like, I'm not a genius. I got here because I was incredibly stubborn. Um, and, you know, I enjoy what I do. And so it's kind of, I'm kind of like in, in the middle, which I think is really kind of cool. So I'm glad to be here with all of you and all of you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the next question that we have if anyone feels particularly passionate about this, is I've often felt, um, if you think intersectionally, I don't. I often feel if I'm treated differently, it's more so because of the type of woman I am. If I'm if I'm feminine, if I have these earrings, if you have a scarf. So I'm wondering if anyone else has had those kinds of shared experiences, and if you've ever felt you have to change the way you speak or dress in order to be taken seriously. The first job I had after my PhD was working at a biotechnology company, and the HR director came up to me and said, you know, Ma, I had just given a presentation, and I was all about fluorescent colors. I, you know, was, yeah, this is the early 90s and late 80s. If anybody remembers, it was all about fluorescence, and I owned fluorescence. Um, but the HR director said, you know, Molly, you want to be taken seriously for what you're saying and not what you're wearing. And if you're wearing these loud, flamboyant colors, that is what people are going to notice. And so it did change um, the way I dress. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I joined the University of Toronto in engineering. And I have to tell you, engineering is probably the most conservative part. And it was very disheartening for me, actually, because I always thought academia was so avant-garde, and it's actually not necessarily true. <laughs> and so, and, and then everybody was wearing um, suits. So I did. I actually have changed the way I dress, and, um, and I do think, I don't think it was a mistake, actually. I, I do think it's important. I, 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 can't, I can't, so I won't hug. I'll just say one last thing. I was uh, listening to CBC Radio this morning, Radio 1, and there was an interview with Camille Paglia. And I don't know if anybody heard this. They had aired it, actually. Yeah, I know, right? Like, I never thought I would quote Camille Paglia because I have that same, like, you guys can't see it, but she's like, um, that's gross. But, you know, she said, men wear suits. They cover their bodies completely. And here we are as women, um, you know, not wearing, not covering ourselves completely. So I'm not advocating for women to cover their bodies completely, but I am advocating for women to dress differently for work than play. I do think there's a, there's a difference. When you're going out to a nightclub, you're going to dress differently than when you're... Renee, did you want to hop in? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think it's, it's important, of course, to separate um, presenting as slightly more formal and confident, which I do think is, val is important and valuable. Absolutely. And in that sense, I'm, not, I'm agreeing with both of you. Um, but for me, and, and of course... Physics is slightly more relaxed than engineering to the point that some of my colleagues have never washed their shirt. Like some of my, <laughs> like I mean, on it, like I'm not actually, I'm not we actually. Talk to somebody in our lab about that. Yeah, we have that too. Right. So, so my my worry is not so much that there's a formal thing versus not. So I had flats on until just outside the door, and then I put on high heels because I wanted to wear high heels. So it's not that I think I should always come in, a, you know, trainers or a, or a tracksuit or something. Um, but it's the fact that there's a slight double standard because I was once asked, so a friend of mine was interviewing for a job in, in um, the government. And so the, the government employee came to interview me about her and he walked in and he knew who I was and he knew my position and he knew why we were there. And he showed up and he said, um, I expected you to have your hair in a bun and we wearing glasses. 
Why you look, why, you know, you, you don't look like a scientist. So not only did he, and I wasn't, again, I wasn't wearing anything flamboyant. I was just wearing, I, I wear black a lot, actually, except today. Um, <laughs> but the point is not only that he made an assumption about what I was, even though he knew who I was because we had an appointment, but he felt it was cool to tell me. And then he wanted me to have a joke with him about it. And that's, I think, what I'm pushing back on, you know. Dr. Mishra, I, I'm curious if, especially as a, a younger faculty as well, do you ever change even the way you speak, perhaps, to... So I was going to say, I think uh, speaking is the one thing that yeah. often I'm given actually a lot of advice on. I tend to have this end inflection. Um, and uh, so that, that does come across equationally, I suppose, as uh, uncertain in what I say. But what I hope is that, uh, again, much more comfortable with data behind me um, and evidence and so forth to, to support that, um, what I'm saying. Um, I'll come back to one point that Renee and, and I think this discussion around dress is that there's appropriateness, but I think that appropriateness cannot or should not be gender, a gendered term or a gendered issue. Um, and, and certainly there's um, appropriateness, I think, especially within sort of a, a clinical context, which um, I think the university has attempted to make non-gendered. Um, but then there's sort of the rest of who we are. And I have been given tons of advice on um, addressing my shorter height, um, perhaps that I may look younger than I actually am. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and, and sometimes uh, the way in which I speak, but uh, that I think I'm best and I'm strongest and I'm uh, the most confident actually when I just feel comfortable. And so that's in flip-flops when I'm coding and that's in covered toe shoes when I'm in the clinic. Um, and so I think um, to try to move away from, I think, the gendered component of being appropriately in how we look and how we speak would be helpful. Because I'm not sure a lot of my colleagues who are males have gotten the same com comments around inflection at the end of their sentences as perhaps I have. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, another thing we're wondering, even relevant to our presence here at this panel, is the burden of representation. If you're one of very few um, women in your field, or perhaps um, you have some other component that makes you unique in your field, you're called to a lot of these types of events, uh, which we're very grateful for, of course, but we're wondering if you have anything to add about the burden of representation that you might feel um, compared to your other colleagues because of your um, fantastic um, accomplishments. And Dr. Williams, I'd love to start with you because I know that you often get called specifically if you're comfortable. Of course. So, I mean, forensic pathology was initially, I swear I'm doing something to this. We can share. <laughs> is, was been like an, an old boys club. Uh, pathology in general has also been more of an old boys club. So to be a woman in pathology and specifically forensic pathology was, you know, it's, we're always seen as a little bit of oddballs. Um, specifically because I'm First Nations, that never really occurred to me that it was a big deal. Um, but because I'm the only one, now I'm kind of seen as the go-to person for essentially everything First Nations. And what people don't generally understand is that First Nations people are different. Indigenous people are different. You know, a West, a West, you know, West Coast Salish person would be very different from Mi'kmaq in the East Coast. is very different from Inuit and very different from Arapaho. So, you know, to try and represent everybody is next to impossible. Um, it's also, you know, like going back to the, the dress part, I'm expected to testify in court. It's a very formal affair. Um, and I remember the day before I was I had to testify for the very first time, I was told that I needed to have a professional, you know, haircut or, you know, do my hair professionally. So the night before, instead of relaxing and trying to prepare myself mentally for this, you know, that's something I've never done before, I spent three hours on YouTube trying to, like, tie my hair up in some way that looked professional. And I ended up looking like I had gourds sticking out of my head, like it was terrible. And so the next day, you know, it was, I just basically tied it back. And I was told, you know, do not wear your hair long. You know, you have to tie it back. It's too distracting. Mm -hmm. I went to go testify at a trial, a very first jury trial up in Thunder Bay, so I'm far away from everybody. And I was waiting outside the courtroom, and my hair tie snapped. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm one of those people that has, like, this really long, thick hair, and I thought, you know what? Like, this is, this is me. Um, I am First Nations. I'm testifying in a First Nations murder case. 
I guess is the first time this has ever happened. Mm -hmm. I just walked up the courtroom and my hair was long and it was swinging. And I said, you know what? This is my strength. So whether they like it or not, that's, you know, I'm here to give the facts. I'm here to tell people what I did um, and give them the benefit of my expertise. I don't care what they think about my hair. Anyone's tweeting that hand raise emoji. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to add something to that? Well, just about representation. I mean, I, I used to occasionally play the game. It's a little depressing as a game, but uh, is in physics, can you double the number of women in the room just by entering the room? Um, <laughs> turns out I've won that game quite a lot. I've played that game quite a lot. Um, so we, you know, we have... Uh, uh, currently, we have three faculty, women faculty, in a, in a faculty of about um, 29. Um, but we've just hired another woman, which is great, and, and she's incredible. Um, so, of course, there are issues where there are not a lot of women who can, you know, add to diversity. And, and I know that sometimes I may be doing a little much. I try and balance the things that I do that are, to make sure that they're really far-reaching. So... Um, where they concern graduate students or where they concern faculty hires, I, I'd like to try and be engaged more than something that is maybe not going to have the impact. Um, but I want to make sure that I also build allies. As Molly was saying, that the allies that I have that care about this can often do much more, and I can say to them, it's important that a man brings up this topic at the faculty meeting so that I don't always look like the complaining woman. Um, and, and, and if you... The great thing about engaging with allies is if they care and you ask for their help, they will do so much more for you than you could do. And I really realize, you know, I, I really want to echo that we don't want to make it a divisive us versus them conversation because um, that just doesn't make sense. Um, another thing we'd like to, speaking of representation, one thing to help with this burden that everyone feels would be to have more women in STEM. And we're doing pretty good at the graduate level, the trainee level, of course. Um, in most departments, not all, but in, in many departments, we're, we're getting better, especially in the biomedical sciences. But I'm curious, when we look at the senior positions and we see far more men, I'm wondering your unique perspectives on why this happens. Where do we lose trainees? Um, I know it's systemic, but what do you see as the most critical thing? And what can we do to change that? What can we walk away with? So where do you see um, women leaving? At what's the most critical challenge? And what do you think we can do to change that, all of us in this room? I would say that most of the women in my lab leave after the PhD. So, but the question is, why? And I think part of the problem is, is that now it takes it's harder to get, an, if, at least in academia, it's harder to get a position. And so it takes a longer time. And so you have to get your PhD, especially, you know, like in biomedical sciences and medicine, there's, there's that postdoc, and then maybe there's another postdoc. And so those are then in your childbearing years. And, and you know, I, I think there's a lot of pressure on women perhaps not to have children during that time, like until they figured it out. I, you know, I... Um, so I'm not suggesting that that is right or wrong, but I think that is, I think part of the challenge that we face now is that it just takes longer to get to, to that first academic position. Um, and then actually there's just sexism, you know, and I, you know, I think we just have to acknowledge that there's a lot of sexism in our culture and it's not just men, it's women as well. And it's because we're all surrounded by the same sexism and, um, you know, and so I think our first challenge is to acknowledge that it exists, and then the, which I don't think a lot of people do. And then the second thing is to do something, you know, so you're like, change, right? So. If I could just add here that I do think, I, I agree with what you're saying, Molly, that there's sexism, there's structural barriers, and sometimes people take them personally when in fact it's not them as a person, it's the structure, and you have to recognize that you just have to keep fighting the structure and staying in the game. Um, and I mean, I, I was um, last year in a, a, a kind of focus group with women faculty in arts and science, and most of them, I think all of us were scientists, and it turned out that the women in the group um, 
had a much, much greater number of years to promotion to full professor than the men in their department. And they were given more teaching assignments and more committee work having to do with teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's a really, I mean, it's very, very important, but those are also really time-intensive kinds of tasks. And the more of them you do, the harder it is to be productive. And then all of a sudden, the structure starts working against you. I agree with you. Absolutely. Is it okay if I jump in? I realize Yes, please. Um, so I think here, you know, again, having role models is really valuable. So, you know, I did was part of a postdoc panel at Princeton, and, we, and I found out what the postdocs with kids were paying in daycare, and it was my rent that just had an additional rent. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, and I said, I would be willing to give money from my salary as someone who doesn't have kids to fund more health, more childcare for the postdocs. But unfortunately, because the postdocs... Um, weren't maybe, not valued enough is the wrong word, but they, faculty members get things that postdocs don't. There was just no safety net. The postdoc daycare was very far away and there was a long waiting list. And, I, and I, there I thought, there's a structural thing that's a no-brainer to me. I really want to make sure that my male and female colleagues with children are really well supported. But I, I worry that we, um, that we get used to the system the way that it is, rather than saying it shouldn't be the case that you need to wait for a year and a half for daycare for your child or that you or that there is no daycare. So I wonder, I don't know what the solutions are, but I wonder if we can start to just think like that's the thing to just fix, like that's fixable. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I'd love to hear the clinical pers perspective. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting to me because I think a lot of these um, within sort of the science part and the clinical part are, are mm -hmm. uh, uh, sort of cross over to each other or, or similar across the two. Um, to add to the structural, which I think is actually, in my sense, I think that is actually the biggest um, biggest barrier. I think we, we do set up both um, things that are that are due to unconscious bias as well as very sort of explicit structures um, that uh, uh, just don't facilitate, don't provide sort of the cultivating environment where it doesn't matter sort of who you are and what your life is like and all those things to um, succeed and just being able to do the science, you know, and just have both the time as well as sort of the, um, the space um, to do that. But I think there's a couple of other things, and um, one of them is, and I think there are data to support this, but um, that people don't really like it. They're very, very supportive when you're sort of the junior faculty when you're when you come on and everyone's really supportive and then you start doing well um, and then you start um, and then you that's when you start to start getting some of the, the comments and the um, yeah and uh, maybe you're not as likable um, when you sort of have to make tough decisions um, uh, and uh, stand up for things against um, uh, compared to other people and I think not only are you not liked by some of perhaps your male colleagues, but you're not as well liked by maybe some of the junior female colleagues as well as others who, um, you know, don't want to be you um, anymore because that's uh, that's not the life they want or they don't want to be like that kind of person. And I think, um, and that's that's tough. Um, and I think it's tough to sort of uh, survive that. Maybe I don't know. And and but I just don't think we're doing a, as good enough a job all the way from I would say. And, and, and mathematics, at least, all the way from sort of um, high school um, to uh, to being a PI, being a professor, and, and cultivating the next generation of scientists in our field. So, and, and same with clinicians. There's very few clinician scientists. There's great at getting you know into medical school now. We're half and half um, graduating from med school, um, and then you see who the um, leaders in academia are in, in medicine, and it's largely. Um, white males or white females, and, and, and we're still stuck there. We, and and uh, it is sort of structural, I think, as well as um, maybe not, not liking the people who do well and supporting them as well would be helpful. Absolutely. Dr. Williams, did you want to add to that? I mean, you know, medicine takes a very long time to get through medical school and residency and fellowship. Um, you know, for someone like me, it took 14 years. Now, you know, by the time you hit residency as a, as a young woman, it's also the time when you start thinking about, okay, I should probably start having kids, and that's always in the back of your mind. Maternity leave, childcare, and, you know, the perception changes, unfortunately. 
where I find a lot of my colleagues, their perception about somebody who's going on mat leave or somebody who has a young family, it changes from this person is rising in the ranks of research and academia and leadership. Um, okay, now their now their priorities have shifted, and at the same time, you see you know some of my male colleagues who don't take you know, paternity leave, and their career just kind of keeps going you know in this upward trajectory. And it seems like the women, unfortunately, if they take mat leave or they have other priorities with their families, it's like their their career kind of stops. And then it goes up a little bit, and then, you know, they might choose to have another child, and again, it just stops. And sometimes it just sort of peters out. And unfortunately, the perception is that, okay, yeah, their, their priorities have changed. When it might not actually be the case, it might be that, okay, they're putting something on hold for a short time, but their goal is still here. And I don't know if that's really supported um, in other, you know, from not only from their own perception of themselves, or from their colleagues' perceptions, and they just, I don't know, a lot of times I just find that they just sort of stagnate in the same place, whereas the people who choose, you know, not to have children can seem, are seen to have this career that just kind of goes upwards, or, you know, the men who have a lot of support at home for their own kids, there's none of that perception that they also might, you know, have to be involved in childcare. It just doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, actually, one of the questions that we were asked prior to this event was related to um, women are often tasked with the burden of caregiving, whether it be for children or, or, or the elderly, et cetera, family members. And while we don't advocate that, um, if you have found yourself in that position, we're really curious some things that you are able to do to still be successful and keep your career trajectory um, on track, given that whether there were things that maybe you asked for in an interview that were helpful, that way anyone with those concerns in the audience might emulate some of the same tactics. I, I remember going to a lecture by the anthropologist Margaret Mead, and she said if women want to be successful in academia, A, they have to learn to delegate mm -hmm. and not be upset by the job somebody else does, because, you know, we can all do it better. <laughs> and B, that we have to learn to live with dust under the bed. So some of the roles that we think we need to take on, we need to let go of a little bit. And I think... Those things are really important. Um, I mean, having having good childcare, like Molly said, you have a team. Having good childcare, having a supportive family makes a huge difference. Um, and and I advocate taking advantage of all of that as you know as best you can. I mean, the workplace has changed a lot now, so that people bring their babies to work, and I think that's awesome. So it's not as stringent um, as it used to be. But I think delegating is really important. You know, I am lucky enough to have a mother who's 94 who's still alive. And I'm terrified. I'm the only child. I'm terrified of what's going to happen as she starts going downhill. She doesn't live in Toronto. I, you know, all I want to do is, is do science. And I'm, I'm, I'm really worried about it. But, you know, you, you, you get help from your family and you figure out how to, how to manage these things. We also need to get help within our departments and our division yes. and within our labs. I, I, I haven't, um, it hasn't, it's come up only once before where a male colleague of mine said he can't imagine taking parental leave because it's like everything would just, like what would happen to the lab? And I had a female colleague who I worked very closely and when she took parental leave, the rest of us, we, like we were the co-supervisors. We, I mean, things, of course things changed but it was that a system was set up um, to facilitate and not to have her hopefully ever think about that or feel guilty either direction. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I think, because um, not everyone's going to have some of the family supports or some of the other things in, in their lives. And I think that uh, having as an institution, as our department, as our, as our labs, that we maybe need to think about ways to um, facilitate that so it's not for whoever it is uh, um, as much of an issue. I would encourage you guys to ask for things. The worst thing that will happen is someone will say no. And I'll just give you one very short example, which is um, I was asked to serve on an NSERC committee. Um, unfortunately, this was um, in September 2001. Um, and I had um, a, I don't know, five-month-old child. And I said, okay, well, I'm still nursing my child, and I will come to your NSERC meeting, but only if 
and my mom said she would come, but only if you know you're going to pay for her to come too. And so that question went all the way to the president of NSERC for them to make that decision. But the decision at the end was, yeah, they wanted me to come, and so they were going to, and it really, it was maybe, I don't know, not very much money, right? So just um, that is how, you know, you get to change policy, right? Just ask for things, and, and you can change things. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. We don't often ask because we are always afraid of rejection. Yeah. Um, we, we do want to take some audience questions. Before we do, um, I'd love to end... If there's anything, I'd like to end, sometimes these kind of feel doom and gloom, and I'd love to end on a bit of a positive note. Um, if there's anything upcoming that you're very excited about, any new initiatives that you know about, online communities, et cetera, or things within your department that you think are doing a really good job at advocating for diversity and inclusivity, um, and, and you'd be willing to share them, that would be um, really great. Something that you're excited about, some new change of something we're doing well. Um, anything that they might be heading or... Something that I'm heading, but I mentioned it a little bit uh, briefly. So we're having a um, meeting that is organized and spearheaded uh, by Hilda Nielsen, who I highlighted, um, on Indigenous astronomy at U of T, and it's going to be a combination of uh, folks in the Center for Indigenous Studies and Astronomy, and we'll really be focusing on <clears throat> both education and how do we develop curricula, but also something that is just starting that I'm hopefully will. Molly said, ask, find a way to ask the university is I want to develop a science-based um, indigenous a scholarship, particularly for um, indigenous Canadian students that we can bring them in and really, really increase the numbers. Because I think, again, we can ask for things. And if we figure out how to ask for good ones, they'll happen. So nothing concrete has happened yet, but I've had some discussions within the astronomy department. So I'm very excited about that. Anyone else on the panel? So it's not necessarily an initiative that I'm doing, but I think it is a really um, exciting time for us to do something and make a change. You know, with our um, with Kirsty Duncan being our Minister of Science, she's really got, a, you know, what you talked about, intentional leadership. And so she's thrown, um, you know, down the... Oh, I'm so bad with expressions. But, you know, she said to the community, we need more women as Canada research chairs. You know, it's just not good enough to still be, as you said, still at 20% 30 years later, um, just even with women faculty. So I think um, that it's a really exciting time for us to make a difference. With the Department of Medicine um, uh, and, uh, and the Faculty of Medicine is, just, I think, very actively in the last about year and a half or so, um, having open discussions about this. And uh, I think that is a huge paradigm shift that I've seen from years and years ago when I was in medical school, where the, the, the paradigm really was about how can I be more assertive, how can I um, be different versus now, which is very much about how do we participate in changing our culture, the structure, the systems, what are things that um, facilitate asking rather than sort of putting it on an individual um, to think about how to ask and so forth. And I, I love being part of that, and I'm... Um, out of the Department of Medicine for all the things that it's trying to do to, um, you know, even, you know, we're not the full table. Um, we're not everybody at the table right now, and, and even this table. And so I think um, there's a long way to go, but I feel this positive shift in, in, in addressing um, systems and structures, and, and that's fantastic to see. And then hopefully as PIs to, to think about how to embed that within the lab that we've we run in our little microcosm as well. Um, so I'm not only uh, faculty at U of T, I'm also, I work for the provincial government, so I'm a, I'm a public servant. And I know, you know, there's a lot of push in the government for more diversity, for including women. Um, and it's, it's interesting because there's, you know, we fought so hard just to have a place in the room. And I think there are opportunities that are coming now where we can actually have a seat at the table. Did you want to add in something else? Yeah, I, I can bring some good news. Sure. So there is progress and there is good news. Uh, Absolutely. It does. We 68% of our graduate students are women. Now, the last three out of the last four chairs that have been appointed in basic science are women. Uh, the the leadership of our dean, the first gay dean in the history of the University of Toronto, 
uh, has been seminal in this development. So we now have a, 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 a diversity officer who's a uh, eminent uh, black female scientist who's uh, involved in every aspect of the Faculty of Medicine. Every single member of a search committee has to go through uh, unconscious bias training now, and it's having an impact. So progress is slow. I want to just make reference to Molly, what you said. It, it could be much faster if we could engage men, people with Y chromosomes in this effort. Uh, and although there are some men here, there are not very many. And uh, so I, I actually am disappointed by the fact that there are not more men at this uh, absolutely outstanding and important event. So those are my thoughts. And I'm sorry to steal the thunder, but I, I wanted to add that, uh, that there is there is a positive side to this. Um, I, I'll add here that I met the organizers of this event um, through social media. And so without connections on Twitter and Instagram with this wonderful communi um, community of, of people in science, I wouldn't have I might not have known about the event or I might not have been able to have been involved. And so I will also encourage anyone who's in need of a community of support to go online, use the phone that's in, undoubtedly in your hand right now, um, search science, search women in STEM, search diversity, and you'll find a lot of other people with the shared experience. And there's a fantastic group um, I can recommend called the STEM Squad, which is an international organization on Facebook where you can be in touch with people from all around the world who might have a shared experience um, culturally based on their gender, based on their fields. So I think um, I'll really recommend going online as well. I'd like everyone to join me first, I guess, in, in thanking our fantastic panel for the discussion. These are difficult issues to talk about, and I think the diversity of perspectives here is really helpful in helping us all come together to evoke better change for better science and, and better communities. So thank you very much for that. I'd, I'd also like to make one last thing that this event was because a group of people came together, and I think that the organizers here really emulate what we're all kind of pushing for, which is being champions for each other and supporting each other and advocating for each other. And so um, I think the next part of this event is going to be encouraging us getting to know each other more so that we can build these types of helpful net productive networks to do that. So thank you for the organizers as well for, for being such good examples for us. Okay, so what do you guys think of that? Did that meet your expectations? Yeah. <laughs> so I found it really nice to re-listen to the discussion because the day of I was live tweeting, so I was just panicking the entire panel, uh, trying to get down what everyone said, squeeze it into 140 characters mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that I didn't miss anything. So it was nice to be able to sit down and relax and listen to it. Um, and I think they covered a lot of ground and a lot of various, a lot of topics. Um, so that was great. Yeah, I, f I felt the same way. Um, I think we were all... Uh, sort of exhausted and the only things I could remember were uh, instances where something had been screwed up or we were having technical problems or anything like that so um, it was really nice to actually sit down and re-listen to the whole discussion from start to finish um, because I actually got to enjoy it this time which was really nice. <laughs> Yay! I yeah. know I know I um, I missed a lot I think when on the day of, mm -hmm. just because, just as you guys mentioned, I was kind of panicking and doing all kinds of things at the back. And so it was really nice to, yeah, sit down and, and uh, take it all in. I think we had all even said uh, the day of, we wish we hadn't planned the event ourselves. Yeah, that we could just attend it. Yeah, I know. And ask, and ask questions. And I know. Enjoy it. But. I know. I think we achieved what we wanted to, right? Did you, did you guys feel like so. we managed to do what we had set out to do? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. What was everyone's favorite part? Ooh, so many to choose from. So <laughs> hard. Um, uh, I guess something that really resonated for me, I don't know if it was my favorite part of the event, but, um, and this is really, I only realized on listening to it again, that um, all of our panelists, or almost all of our panelists, uh, talked about having a lot of great support uh, growing up um, and a lot of encouragement to go into whatever field they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was, it really just drove home the point of how important it is to to have that support and to have other people um, around you encouraging you um, along the way. And it seemed like it played a big part in their careers as they are today. So that was just really interesting for me. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's not included in the panel discussion, but 
uh, when audience members were asking questions. I think somebody had asked, "What you know? What can we do mm-hmm. um, to support women in the future?" And mm-hmm. I actually don't remember who responded to this, but either one of our panelists or somebody from the audience said, "You know, think really carefully about what toys you buy your children, mm-hmm. um, and make sure whatever you're buying for your sons, you're also buying for your daughters." So, so toy toy microscopes for everyone. Yay. Yay. <laughs> cell biology <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> or like rocket ships that's cool, cool yeah too. any <laughs> anything science related or non-science related just like yeah. get yeah non-gendered toys yeah, for boys everybody can, boys can do art right? yeah, yeah for sure for sure mm-hmm. um how about you alex what was your favorite part my favorite part Ooh, this is this is really tricky um I think one thing that really struck me was um, when uh, Dr. Molly Shoikit brought up the concept of internalized sexism. And um, it really kind of shocked me, I guess, because I think it's something that we all kind of maybe have, these internalized sentiments, and it, it, mm-hmm. it's somewhat subconscious. Do you think you guys have ever felt have, that way? Yeah, like or caught yourself feel, feeling mm-hmm. those biases? Thinking those biases? I- <laughs> Yeah, I I have and it, but but I think um I think I've I've always been somewhat of a reflective person so I think but I I often will like catch myself doing these things but I think this really hit it home for some reason yeah. I I was really aware of how even as as women we will often think certain things about our female colleagues or other women in the workplace um and it's not really based on their their performance or their character but it's just because they're women and um we need to like change that as well uh, about how we think too. Mm-hmm. So just because yeah. some um, a woman is pregnant or she's thinking about starting a family, it doesn't mean her priorities mm-hmm. have changed. Exactly. Um, if men want families also, we don't tend to think that their priorities have changed. So we yeah, should, we shouldn't be thinking that mm-hmm. for, for women, women also. Yeah. 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 No, it's very true. Absolutely. And I guess uh, sort of going off of that point, um, I think it also speaks to the importance of having uh, male and female um, females involved in this conversation and having male allies um, Mm -hmm. involved Mm -hmm. in pushing for more diversity in the STEM fields, um, in part because we as women might um, internalize some of these biases that um, we're exposed to all the time. Um, And I was really glad that someone on the panel had brought that up and um, had spoken to the fact that you need to include more men in the conversation. And I find myself... Uh, more and more recently, especially with having planned this event, um, talking to my male friends about this more and bringing it up at the dinner table with my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've taken this, the coffee hour and the lunch break conversations that I've had with you too. Um, and I'm starting to talk about it with, with uh, all of my friends and all of my family members. Mm-hmm. So you don't end up always being the angry woman in the room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but sometimes you have to, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you have to. You know, it's true. And something else that um, was brought up was the importance of uh, learning to ask um, for things and, and learning to push for things. Uh, so for a great example of this was when Dr. Molly Shoik had talked about going on to that um, NSERC panel, and she ended up asking them to um, sponsor her mother to come with her so that she could help her with childcare. Uh, and it took a while, it seemed like, and it went all the way up to um, the head the of NSERC, the president yeah. of NSERC. But... <clears throat> You know, they they were able to accommodate, and it worked out really well. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, because that's how policies change, mm-hmm. which is awesome to see. Because I guess so for the people who are at the top, if if they don't represent you, they don't feel the same uh, biases or um, challenges, I guess, that you do, right? Mm-hmm. So the only way that you're actually gonna make something change is by talking yourself, right? So yeah, by making by your asking voice questions heard. and yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. engaging others and in the conversation and letting them know, like, this is a real issue for me. I think it's something that women in particular have maybe an issue with because I th- sometimes really strong and what often people will refer to as, like, mouthy women will be characterized as sort of, like, very masculine and, and bossy. bossy and, and really unlikable, And right? unlikable. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we have to kind of straddle this fine line between, like, making yourself hurt but then also still being, like, a, a nice female or something in the workplace but at the same time I don't know if like you have to because yeah if we don't ask for these changes then they won't be changed and it maybe it's our responsibility to to invoke those changes for the people who come after us 
Um, and I think in the keynote, which uh, is available online on our website, um, one point that uh, Renee made that was excellent was about bringing about change in the system. And she she had it broken down into three steps of infiltrate, survive, and then change. Um, and so it, it, I think she was just really speaking to, um, first of all, infiltrating. Mm-hmm. Sounds really dun, 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 dun. ominous and scary <laughs> and underlines the fact that, you know, you really might not belong. Um, but once you get syndrome there, is real. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Especially <laughs> in a field like physics or yeah. astrophysics. That's absolutely very impressive. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then once you, you survive and you uh, stay in the system um, and you get to a point where you maybe are able to make uh, more systemic changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was I was just really glad to see the enthusiastic response that we got from all of our panelists because they are in a place where they, they can really make a, a big difference, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it was really great to have them be so supportive of the event and what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what's next for us, guys? I was about to ask the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> more panels. Time yeah, more. <laughs> no, I know. We start reading each other's minds. Well, I mean, the the university was super enthusiastic and really supportive of our event. Shout out to U of T. Yeah. Thanks for supporting <laughs> us. And uh, actually encouraged us to think about the future and maybe making this a yearly event. Uh, roughly within the same theme of like diversity in, in uh, STEM fields, but then, you know, changing it up, maybe making it a debate. So we're definitely thinking about things. And if you have ideas for us also, definitely reach out to us. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's a perfect place for our conversation to end off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to join the discussion, we would love to hear from you as always. Um, there's a big community online uh, around women in STEM and a number of attendees were also tweeting alongside myself. Um, So you can join that conversation and connect with others using the event hashtag notaddress17. So that's hashtag notaddress17. So that was great. We had a really good time planning this event and we're looking forward to similar events in the future. Um, and we hope that you guys are now excited for season two of Raw Talk, which is yeah. crazy because we've been doing this for a year. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but so look out for season two, episode one, which is coming out September 15th. Um, we have quite a few new members, uh, so you'll hear their voices. I think our team has like doubled in size. Yeah. Which is, which is I know. Fun. This speaks to, to how maybe successful we were season one how good we were (laughs) but you'll but you'll hear more about that yeah in season one episode or season two episode (laughs) one (laughs) so until next time keep Keep it it raw raw. that was so cheesy oh i know raw talk is a student presentation of the institute of medical science at the university of toronto the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the ims the faculty of medicine or the university To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rawtalkpodcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. I just walked up the courtroom and my hair was long and it was swinging and I said, you know what, this is my strength.